Hi, I'm Mark Brody, co-host of the show, one of KJZZ's original productions. It's a program with news and features from across Phoenix and the state. You can find much more at theshow.kjzz.org. Here's today's episode. Good morning and welcome to the show here on KJZZ 91.5 in Phoenix. I'm Lauren Gilger. And I'm Mark Brody. Coming up, Governor Hobbs has fired the entire board of the Arizona-Mexico Commission. And a family-owned Phoenix sports bar gets new life. But first, the Scottsdale City Council last night unanimously approved a plan that could, that could have the city once again providing water to the unincorporated community of Rio Verde. The issue has been ongoing for several months, and Scottsdale turned off the taps on January 1st. That's left residents to rely on private water haulers, with some saying they can't shower at home and are dependent on bottled water. The plan okayed by Scottsdale would have the city get Rio Verde's water from a third party, but then treat it and use the city's pipes to get it to the community. It's also temporary, up to three years, and it requires approval from the Maricopa County Board of Supervisors. With me to talk more about this is Scottsdale City Council Member Solange Whitehead. Good morning. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. So this was a, a unanimous decision last night by the council. What to you makes it a good plan? Well, finally, for the first time, this is a step in the direction of providing these unincorporated residents with a permanent water solution. So Scottsdale's been a great neighbor, and we've been able to provide water for almost 20 years. But really, what this community needs is their own water source. What changed? Let's get into a little bit, a little bit of the backstory here. What changed? Scottsdale, as you say, had been providing water and then basically said, we, we can't do it anymore. Right. So Scottsdale's really been an international leader on water management, conservation, and recycling. And that enabled us to provide water outside of our city borders. With the Colorado River shortage, we enacted our drought management plan, which uh, changed a number of things in the city. And one is that we can no longer provide water outside our city border. So while we could no longer provide Rio Verde water, we've been committed all along to being part of the solution. Do you know from where you'll get the water to provide to Rio Verde, assuming that, that this plan goes forward? Yeah, our staff, so Scottsdale's water is sourced from a number of different um you know, different areas. And we feel confident that we can increase just enough to provide this community with water for two to three years. Uh, we don't believe we could do it long term. So we'll be just increasing the amount that we get from one of the sources of our water. Okay. So not looking for a, a whole new source just just for Rio Verde. You'll incorporate what you, incorporate them into what you've already what you're already getting, just maybe increase those sources a little bit more. Yeah, what we were looking for was the most efficient, fast way to provide secure water. And so that's why it's flowing through the city's existing um, sources. So you call this a step, and it is just one step. Of course, the County Board of Supervisors, as we mentioned, has to go along with this. Do you have any assurances? Do you have optimism that, that they will? Yeah, I, I think that the county will. This has been um, really a tremendous effort on the part of many levels of government that had to navigate all sorts of state and local laws to make it happen. So we've been working with the attorney general's office, the county, um, you know, obviously the city, the residents themselves, and the legislature to get here. So this has been a group effort, and I feel confident the county will get us across the finish line. And there's, uh, among those levels of government, the state legislature, some lawmakers have been pretty on top of this issue. Did you, 
as a council member, did you feel pressure from them? Like what how what was the state lawmakers involvement here? Well, I think what the city council did was the right choice, and that was to get politics out of the situation. We directed our city attorneys and our city manager to work with their counterparts and all these levels of government to simply find a path that provided water to these people. I want to ask you about a few of the provisions of this plan, one of which seemingly had caused some consternation among uh, some Rio Verde residents, which is that only residents who were in their homes at the start of this year would be eligible. Anyone moving in after uh, the start of January would not. Why Why was that important to you to have in there? So the amount of water that the city of Scottsdale believes that it can um, provide for these residents is limited. So we wanted to protect the residents that were previously using city of Scottsdale water. The actual details of that, our city manager has the power to figure out exactly the right date or the right group that will be provided water. Do you think that the plan that you approved last night, like, will those details be the final details? Is there wiggle room for negotiation in there? Absolutely. I think our city manager, who's been very involved in this process and helped us get here with the input from city council members, yeah, I think there's going to be wiggle room. What has this whole process been like for you? I mean, this has been a really contentious issue, as one might expect if people are worried about not having water in their homes. Like, what has it been like from from your perspective? Well, I think it's an opportunity, and I think perhaps in the media in particularly that was missed. Uh, we are going to have a future with less water. We have many opportunities to live just as enjoyably as we have in the past. We're going to have to innovate and make some changes. And I think this was a successful outcome. There's still a lot of work to be done at the state level. We can definitely provide water for a long time for our residents in Arizona, but we won't necessarily be able to provide water to every place everybody wants to live. Right. And and those are obviously more state, county, state level decisions and perhaps a city level decision coming up. Yes. All right. That is Scottsdale City Council Member Solange Whitehead. Thank you so much for coming in. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. Last week, our new Democratic governor, Katie Hobbs, sent shockwaves through the business community when she canceled a slew of last-minute contracts former Governor Doug Ducey had secured for them just before he left office, calling them illegal. Now, many of those same folks are reeling again from Hobbs' most recent move to fire en masse the entire board of directors for the Arizona-Mexico Commission. The commission is a powerful body that works to strengthen business and political ties between Arizona and our neighbor to the south and was stacked with influential people on those fronts until now. Hank Stevenson of the Arizona Agenda has been writing about it all, and he joins us now to tell us more. Good morning, Hank. Hey, Lauren. Good morning. So this move comes as Hobbs was actually in Mexico, meeting with the Mexican president and other dignitaries there. Is there any significance to the timing and and why she did this? I mean, you've got to figure that the timing is not a coincidence here. Uh, This was her first international trip as governor. She was meeting with the uh, not only the Mexican president, but the new governor of Sonora, who has kind of made it clear, just as Hobbes is doing, that he is not his predecessor and he's going to do things his own way. So I think that timing is significant. And she was probably trying to show that there's a new governor in town and she's going to do things the way she wants to do things. Sure, sure. So tell us more, Hank, about what this commission does and and just who was on it. Like, were these all Ducey allies? 
Not all of them. Uh, there were a fair number of Ducey allies on there, but there were also, you know, holdovers from Democratic administrations. Uh, some of these board members had been on there for decades. And the, 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 the commission is kind of a government sponsored chamber of commerce for mm -hmm. the border region is the best way I can describe it. Mm -hmm. They facilitate trade, kind of good vibes between Arizona and Mexico through meetings and hosting summits and glad handing, pressing palms and things like that. It's a public private partnership in the form of nonprofit, um, but the governor appoints the board and they serve at the governor's uh, pleasure. It's been around for a really long time. And basically a seat on this commission is a really big deal because mm -hmm. not only does it show that it's you're in the governor's orbit, but it kind of opens up all these connections and business opportunities for the board members themselves. This is a very coveted job for, mm -hmm. you know, movers and shakers in the political and business sphere. Okay, so lots of Ducey allies, but not all. And and you kind of think those could have been, you know, Hobbes allies. Yeah, I mean, I think even, you know, the Ducey allies, the, most of these people are Republicans, not all of them. But even the ones that are Republicans are kind of, you know, old school Republicans. Um, I'd be surprised if many of them didn't vote for Hobbes over Kerry Lake, to be honest. Um, they're kind of good old boys. Uh, not hardcore partisan activists. They're go-along-to-get-along business types. And, the, you know, whether they're on the commission or not, they wield a lot of influence in Arizona. Um, you know, I think that these are the kind of people that Hobbes would naturally want in her corner when mm -hmm. she's, you know, starting a new gig as the governor. So it sounds like there could be some big political implications here. What's the fallout looked, at, looked like so far? Well, these people are kind of old political pros, so none of them were screaming to the press about Hobbes just firing mm -hmm, them. Mm -hmm. You know, they're they're practical political types. Um, and I think a lot of people are kind of scratching their heads. No governor has ever swept the commission clean before, as far as I can tell. And she did it with a very short, curt letter. Um, she could have called a lot of these people and just said, hey, I'd like you to resign. I need some room for my own appointees. And I'm sure that many of them would have obliged. Um, so firing them in mass, um, even the ones who were her supporters, was just kind of a bizarre and unexpected move. Has she come off looking, you know, tough? Like this is, you know, she's in charge now and, and her people will be the ones in charge as well? I would say like she's come off looking kind of unpredictable, mm. um, a, a little bit confusing, you know, and I think that's been kind of a theme throughout this uh, early tenure of her governorship is just... Uh, doing things that are unexpected to some degree um, that don't really make a lot of sense. Some of the fights that she's picking uh, because these people were not her enemies, you know, and just she could have cleaned out part of the board. But instead, you know, went and swept the whole thing clean and made some waves and probably made a few uh, enemies out of it. Mm. OK, so, Hank, lastly, then any idea who she will appoint to replace all of these people who she who she fired here? No clue. She's got a mm. lot of open spots there right now. The website's just her face where there used to be two dozen of the most influential <laughs> people in Arizona politics and business. Um, so she's got a lot of people to appoint. I did try to ask her staff yesterday. They wouldn't say um, 
there was kind of a theory in the absence of communication that perhaps she was changing this to be a more immigration focused commission mm. or something like that. They kind of pushed back against that and said, no, that's not the case. We've got some people in mind. We'll tell you when we're ready. Um, but anyone can apply to the commission. So if you're a big shot Democratic <laughs> activist and or business person, uh, opportunity of a lifetime is knocking right now. <laughs> but Hank, she also said the people who are currently on the board or were on the board until very recently could also reapply, right? Yeah, yeah. And, I, you know, I assume some of them will. Mm. I got to believe that's a bit of a blow to their ego for some of them who have been, you know, her supporters, her allies uh, have been on the commission for a long time and are now being told you can reapply for your job if you'd like. Mm. But yes, anyone can reapply. And I assume that a couple of them will and probably get picked to stick around. All right. That'll do it. Hank Stevenson of the Arizona Agenda joining us this morning. Thanks, Hank. Thanks, Lauren. The Valley woke up today to incredible winds and rain, unlike some of us have ever seen here. Power's out in places, flights are delayed, and the streets are a mess. Matt Pace is a meteorologist for the state's Department of Environmental Quality. He says it's bad here, but even worse up north. Yeah, the storm has arrived. It swept through the Phoenix Valley this morning. A cold front moved through, bringing some rain. But the big story was the wind. We saw some peak wind gusts of 51 miles per hour at Sky Harbor, 56 in Deer Valley. But if you go up to the high country, the peak wind gust was 68 miles per hour in Flagstaff. The good news is the bulk of the moisture is now moving into eastern Arizona. And then the winds will begin to die down as we head into the afternoon. But it is still going to be breezy. There is still that wind advisory in effect until 8 p.m. for the valley. So just how unusual is a windstorm like this? This is certainly a unique system, very powerful storm system, a big temperature difference ahead and behind that cold front. That's why we saw those very strong winds, certainly not out of the question to get strong winds during the winter months, but it is up there. The National Weather Service actually looked at some stats and they found from November to March, there was a 60 mile per hour wind gust at Phoenix Sky Harbor back in November 4th, 2011, and a 51 mile per hour wind gust on November 29th, 2019. So not completely out of the question, but certainly a rare windy storm system to move through Arizona. The weather is obviously having a major impact on roadways throughout the state. David Woodfill is a public information officer with ADOT. We have snow-covered and icy roads in the higher terrains and along the rim area. I-40 between U.S. 93 and the Arizona-New Mexico state line is closed both ways. State Route 87 between Winslow and Payson is closed both ways. I-17 between State Route 179 and Flagstaff is closed northbound, but that's going to be closed southbound as well. And State Route 260 is closed between Star Valley and Heber Overguard. So as you can tell, we have a lot of closures. Those aren't even all of them. Those are just the major ones. Woodfill says there are reports trickling in of minor accidents, but he feels strandings and pileups will be averted due to preemptive road closures. ADOT is recommending people simply stay home, and Woodfill issued this warning. If folks do drive, we are telling them to prepare to spend extended amounts of time potentially uh, at, as roads close, and they should pack an emergency kit, including uh, extra food and water, blankets, winter clothing, extra meds, things of that nature. As for those hitting the skies today, Eric Everts, a spokesman for Sky Harbor International Airport, described the scene at the airport this morning. 
Fortunately, it hasn't been too bad. If you go through the, the airport right now, you know, things uh, are, are moving along. There's not very long uh, security wait times. You know, there, there have been some uh, flight delays and cancellations. If you're out and about, stay safe out there and, you know, hold on to your hat. Good morning. It's the show on KJZZ 91.5. I'm Mark Brody. And I'm Lauren Gilger. Coming up, a Japanese manga-inspired exhibit is being shown at the Phoenix Art Museum. We'll hear from its curator about what makes this art style special. But first, a state house committee this afternoon is scheduled to debate a bill that would get rid of the state's sales tax on diapers and feminine hygiene products. Governor Hobbs called for doing this in her State of the State speech last month, and the idea seems to have bipartisan support. A separate bill that would require public schools serving 6th to 12th graders to provide feminine hygiene products in women's and gender-neutral bathrooms, though, appears stalled. The issue of period poverty has gained momentum in recent years, and a Valley-based nonprofit has been at the forefront of those conversations. Demetra Presley is executive director of Go With the Flow, which works to provide free period products to students, as well as low-income and unsheltered people across Arizona. We spoke with her a few years ago when she just started out and decided to check back in with her. When we spoke, I asked how what she does has changed and evolved over the last few years. Go Up the Flow originated as a social media campaign um, that was funded through a fundraiser on GoFundMe. Since that time, we have incorporated into a actual 501c3 nonprofit organization. We have expanded across the state of Arizona. So we not only provide free period products to schools in Phoenix, but also neighboring metropolitan areas, as well as down south to the Tucson and Casa Grande and neighboring areas, all the way up north around the Kingman area. Um, We have also taken on several community partner um, organizations to provide them with free period products as well. Um, So they're able to have menstrual supplies available to the community members that they work with. Is this the kind of trajectory you envisioned when you first started doing this? Oh, my gosh. Um, Yes and no. So when I first started, I knew that there was definitely a need for period products um, within the school setting. Unfortunately, the majority of our schools, while they do a lot for a purchase of period products using uh, school money, is not at the amount that is needed by students. So I knew that once I started working on providing schools for free period products, that there was definitely an unmet need, a substantial unmet need uh, that was taking place across schools around the state. I did not know that it was going to be such a huge need and the impact of what it looks like when students don't have access to period products. Well, how much of the need do you think that you and your partners are able to meet now? Obviously more than when you first started, but are you able to meet a more substantial part of that need now? 
Absolutely. I want to say that when we first had our conversation, we had just started um, doing donations of period products, and we maybe only had a couple of school districts or schools under our belt. Um, we have expanded to well over 200 schools uh, currently. So the need for students to have access to period products is something that expands across the grade level. Um, and with the work that we have been able to do over the last couple of years, we have definitely uh, increased our outreach um, to the schools that we are working with. We have uh, new schools that come on board with us every semester. Um, and then during the summertime, we pivot and try to focus more of our efforts and our outreach on making sure that community members have access to period products through the community partner organizations that we, that we work with. What does it mean for those students, especially those who maybe they or their families can't afford the products on their own, to know that they can get them in school, you know, for a situation that for a lot of students can be, you know, if they're not taken care of, if they're not dealt with appropriately, can be kind of embarrassing. Absolutely. What what it means is a difference between that student being able to attend school that day. A lot of folks don't know that in the United States, one out of five students will miss school because they don't have access to period products. So not having access to these supplies is not only a thing that has a detrimental impact on their education, it also impacts their physical health and it impacts their emotional health. Um, we have had some studies that have been done in the last couple of years that talk about the emotional impact of not having access to period products. And those include an increased rate of depression, of stress, of anxiety. It doesn't seem like it would be such a significant factor, um, but when folks don't have access to the supplies that they need to manage a very normal and and healthy bodily function, it can have an impact on their ability to function in everyday life. Um, and we know it can definitely have an, an impact on their ability to receive an education and even participate in the workforce. Do you find that the conversation about this issue, about period products, maybe even about menstruation in general, has that changed at all over the last number of years? I think that it has. Um, we have a lot of work that is being done around making periods more of an easier topic to have conversations about. Um, unfortunately, even in 2022, menstruation is still something that is very heavily stigmatized. And we have seen over the last couple of years where there has been this movement towards erasing some of that stigma and changing that perception that periods aren't something that should be talked about in public spaces. So there's definitely more of a movement, a growing movement um, to really normalize this topic. Um, and really that's half of the battle right there. Um, and just being able to have a conversation about it. Once we reach that point, then we'll really be able to take a deep dive into what it looks like to have menstrual equity in the United States. I would think the fact that that conversation is maybe more open to be had in the public square now 
is especially helpful to many of the students that your nonprofit is trying to help. I would I would think that, you know, every student maybe has a different understanding, maybe a different conversation with grown-ups about what is happening to them and to be able to actually have more conversations than just with maybe one or two people, I would think is probably fairly helpful to a lot of people. Absolutely. Some of the most exciting feedback that we have gotten from our schools has been around how when they have increased access of period products, what impact that has on the interactions and encounters that they have with students and how students become more comfortable with talking about their periods and with talking about the need um, that they have to manage their periods in a way that is safe and dignified. Um, and that that for us, as much as we love being able to put um, the actual product itself into the hands of students, we are also extremely excited about really having that internal change and having that internal impact on that individual menstruator and, and helping them understand that their period is not something that they have to feel embarrassed about. All right. That is Demetra Presley, executive director of the nonprofit Go With The Flow. Demetra, really nice to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Good morning. It's the show on KJZZ 91.5. I'm Mark Brody. And I'm Lauren Gilger. Dana Armstrong grew up in sports bars. It wasn't the most typical upbringing, but it was one filled with fun. Thanks to her dad, the late Frank Armstrong. He was the co-founder of the chain of beloved Valley sports bars called the Dirty Drummer, which had more than a dozen locations by the mid-1980s. But in 2018, the last location of the Dirty Drummer was set to close until Dana Armstrong stepped in to save it. She joined together with business partners Adam Smith and Tom Bernard to buy out the remaining owners of the bar and renovate it to its former glory. Today, it's becoming a fixture of the Phoenix bar and music scene with a stage added to the amber-lit space. I sat down with Armstrong at the bar there to talk about taking over the business and restoring it to match her childhood memories. My dad and his business partner Dave opened the first Dirty Drummer in 1975. My dad, Frank Armstrong, his nickname was Drummer. And Dave's nickname was Dirty Dave, and so that's how they got the name, by putting their nicknames together at the very last minute. So (laughs) my mom was not too happy, but she got used to it. So they opened 14 of those over the years, and this particular one was the fifth one. It's also the the last one. So we took it over in January 2019. We bought out Dave and have been working on it since then. And it looks pretty great. Tell us what this was like. What are your memories of it being a little kid, like running around this, what was basically a sports bar, right? It was, yeah, definitely a sports bar where the owners and the customers and the staff actually kind of, they participated in in the sports. They weren't just spectators. They actually, you know, ran marathons and had sporting events together. So it's kind of a, I don't know, pretty inspiring growing up here. Like uh, it was a very athletic kind of community. And that being said, there's a lot of beer being being <laughs> had. And uh, my brother and I had a lot of uh, Cokes and Shirley Temples, played, played a lot of uh, Pac-Man. <laughs> but, you know, it was fun. Um, it was just a very social environment. So we were running around as little kids and sometimes had to take a nap or something over here in these booths, like these actual booths. You would take naps here when you were little? Yes. Or sometimes, you know, when... When you're little and your parents don't want to leave a restaurant, they're not ready to go and you're so tired, you just 
conk out and go to sleep. Absolutely. I think we've all done that at some point. Did you have any inkling at the time, like as a kid or maybe as you grew up, like that this was not a typical upbringing? <laughs> um, I do remember at Hopi, I got in trouble or I had to go home and change because I was wearing a Jack Daniels t-shirt, <laughs> which I didn't, you know, I didn't at the time. I didn't, I think it was like third grade, so I didn't really think about it. For us, it was just normal. Like, I think it didn't even occur to me till early adulthood that that's it wasn't typical and like not everyone was going to um, sports bars all over town really like any any trip we went on we were going to visit other sports bars going to sporting events and just having fun I mean that was my dad's philosophy was just have fun in life tell us about your dad was he was he an athlete he was he is a, a marathon runner uh, with my mom and a bunch of their friends, like they, I mean, they really had the Dirty Drummer racing team where they'd actually run marathons. Wow. And um, yeah, he did weights and he was a coach. And so, yeah, a big part of his life was staying active and, and fit and drinking a bunch of Miller Lite. <laughs> All comes together here. So it sounds like your family too has like deep roots in, in the valley in Phoenix. Uh, yeah, my dad was born in Yuma and then moved up here to Phoenix in the, um, the early 40s. So he, he's been around for a long time. He passed away in 2012, but definitely deep roots here in Arizona. And um, the great thing about having this bar now is that a lot of his old friends still come in, the ones who are still around. And so um, they can still tell me stories about my dad that I wouldn't have known otherwise and kind of share like what they did in the 60s running around Phoenix, you know? Well, let's let's take a look around because I know you kind of painstakingly redesigned this and kind of made this back into something that semi-resembled the place that you remembered from when you were a kid, right? Right. I tried to make it feel like it did back then. So the bar where we're sitting, this particular bar was actually the original bar that my dad and his friends built in 1979 for this bar. But when we took it over, it was um, covered in white tile just like all these tables were covered in white tiles. So we came in with a roto hammer and just <laughs> chiseled it up and actually were able to restore the bar top. So, so, we, so under the tile was this beautiful wood? Yeah, we lucked out and uh, with the original epoxy. So we sanded it and uh, refinished it. Wow. Yeah, and so we kind of lucked out that this was actually still under there and it was salvageable. Wow. So in terms of like the feel of the place, you've got the wood walls, you've got a lot of vintage bar memorabilia on the walls, <laughs> pool table, disco ball. I mean, it feels very much like um, kind of like an old haunt, right? I think so. Yeah, we're kind of going for a classic Phoenix bar because that's what the Dirty Drummer is, essentially. So everything that goes in here kind of has some meaning to us and hopefully harkens back to the original Dirty Drummers. What are some of your favorite pieces around? Um, so this, this wall, I remember these elements as a kid. So you, you had the diagonal wood walls, you have the veined mirrors, you have the amber lighting, mm -hmm. and those are all elements that I distinctly remember as a kid because you see like how it feels right now, there's a certain vibe, I guess. Yeah. So I just kind of took those elements and amplified them and ran with them. So if you see these diagonal wood walls, I didn't know why, like I couldn't specifically remember, but I just knew that was like so dirty drummer. And then if you go over here and look at this, um, this picture that was donated to us 
from the Tempe Historical Museum. You're kidding. Yeah. This is uh, the location in Tempe. No way. I think the year it opened, uh, which was 1979. Is this your dad in this picture? Yeah. This is probably 84. That's my dad. Uh, that's Dave, that's Zane, and that's Jimmy. Wow, there they are. <laughs> and one thing you said you added was the stage, right? Because you had been in the music world, it sounds like, before this? Yes, I did the uh, Valley Fever Country Music Night. So for a long time, I was at Yucca booking bands and DJing a country night. And so I kind of brought that concept to the drummer and incorporated that with the existing um, sports bar slash neighborhood bar feel. And um, yeah, it kind of works. We added a green room and a stage. So, I mean, in terms of the place that you see this filling in the community, Phoenix has changed so much, right? Like, it sounds like you're trying to hold on to a bit of identity for the place or, or create it. I think it's important um, to remember that Phoenix does have a, a rich history culturally. And, you know, there were nightlife places and bars and restaurants that sometimes are forgotten. But I, I think that's partially what we're trying to hold on to. We, wanted, we didn't want to see this place just go away like so many of those old restaurants and bars had. So that part, yeah, we're trying to hold on to that and, and kind of capture the importance of it. That's rare, though, in Phoenix, right? Because like you said, so many of those places have been lost and are being lost all the time. And, and there's something lost in that. I think we kind of quickly move on in the city because it's changing so fast and we kind of discount the fact that there is a history here. So do you feel like, um, like you are accomplishing something in doing that? I, I do think so. I think in a, in a broad sense, you know, a lot of people know about the Dirty Drummer, especially if they've been here for a while. So that's why we decided to keep the name. And then internally, we hear stories all the time from older customers and they're communicating with younger customers and everyone's interacting and people can learn about the past here. They can learn about Phoenix history and um, so many new people here in Phoenix, you know? And it's important to me to like let people know like, hey, you know, a lot of us have been here a long time so what do you think your dad would think of this place now that it's back? That's a good question. A lot of people ask me that or try to uh, tell me what he would think. <laughs> Which, like, <laughs> but, um, you know, he, his motto was always just go for it. And uh, I think that he would be proud that Tom and Andrew and I really took the concept into our own direction. So I think that, you know, this wasn't his identity. This was just one of the many bars that he had and many careers that he had. So we kind of took the parts that we loved about what he did and the spirit that they created when they first opened the drummer, which was just super positive and, and active. And we're trying to take that and then take it into the future, <laughs> you know, bring it into this generation. And all generations seem to feel comfortable here because the older people have a connection and the newer people find something else that, they, that they're into here and they can connect with it on a different level. But also they're, everyone's kind of coming together and that's, I think, important. It's important for that new generation to have something that is linked to the history here too, right? Absolutely. And, and vice versa. You know, people want to be, I think, in a community that's multi-generational and... Uh, multicultural and inclusive and just kind of feel like they're a part of the place and the and the roots of the city that they live in. 
Dana Armstrong, thank you so much for showing me around. Oh, thank you so much. That was my conversation with Dana Armstrong, co-owner of the Dirty Drummer Eaten and Drinking Place in Phoenix. Good morning. It's the show on KJZZ 91.5. I'm Mark Brody. And I'm Lauren Gilger. Japanese artist Mr. created his largest piece of work to date recently, and it hangs in the Phoenix Art Museum right now. It is a massive collage packed full of countless details from anime-inspired characters and video game-looking emojis to words in English and Japanese. The longer you look at it, the more you see. It's part of Mr.'s solo show at Phoenix Art right now. You can hear the song of this town is what it's called. And he says it's intended to capture the intricacies of a human mind in a single instant. The show was curated by former Phoenix Art curator Vincent Vicario, who told me he was drawn to the manga-inspired work of Mr. for a lot of reasons, beginning with just how different it is from what we're used to seeing here in the Southwest. I spoke with him more about it. It's very contemporary and it's very specific to contemporary Japanese culture. And it is rooted in the tradition of manga and anime, which is essentially just a Japanese version of uh, comic books and cartoons that we in the West, in the United States are very familiar. However, in Japan, it's it's very much uh, rooted in their traditions and their histories. And it sort of reflects a, a certain subculture that Mr. comes from and identifies with in Japan, right? Yeah, that's an interesting question. And, you know, you certainly can debate it. There's sort of like a, an issue with translation of how do you translate something for a Western audience. And I think that in that for the most part, it has sort of been relegated to this notion that it's part of a subculture. Hmm. Um, and I think it's just kind of the what you know, it's sort of like something's lost, I guess, in that translation. Mm-hmm. But it's also just kind of, it's a fascinating thing to ponder. Hmm. I definitely regard Mr. as an outsider artist, which is a term that we tend to use here to describe somebody who perhaps didn't go to the, to the academy, who, sure. who learned art or was self-taught. And in some ways, that's essentially what, what Mr. is um, and how he's defined himself as an artist. It's basically just something that was very particular to his own, in, to his own um, interests mm-hmm. and in some ways to his own learning curve. Mm. Um, and that I think what's happened is that those two things have, have, have created something very unique and interesting. And I would have to say that that's probably one of the reasons why I was so interested in working with Mr. Mm. Um, number one, because I haven't worked with the contemporary living artists from, from Japan ever. Mm. And so as a curator, I'm always wanting to, you know, challenge myself and really to, to do something that I hadn't done before. And the other is really to sort of begin to understand where somebody like Mr. is coming from, both aesthetically and culturally. Historic works of art are like a form of time travel, mm-hmm. whereas contemporary art, it's a way of bringing a culture to your backyard. Bringing exhibitions is a way of allowing people to travel there, in, in this case, conceptually and visually. Yeah. 
I want to talk a little bit about what this looks like for people since this is radio. I mean, there are there there are large pieces. There's actually one incredibly large one we'll talk about as well. Um, and it's sort of it looks like, you know, a mishmash. It's like multimedia. There are sort of large yeah. kind of anime looking faces, characters. There's words in here in Japanese and in English. And it's sort of chaotic. Like there's a lot going on in these. And it seems like layer after layer after layer of of thought here. They almost mm-hmm. look digital. But they're they're a mix of both, I understand. They're a mix of both. There's definitely a density, which I find fascinating. And when I first, when I was originally pitching the idea to to people at the museum, I said, think of it as, you know, in some ways it's deeply connected to the to our own tradition of abstract expressionism. It's mm. sort of all over. However, it's not done with just splatters of paint, but it's done with these little figures. It's done done with references to, to contemporary culture in Japan, to commercial culture, to globalism. You can either look at it as a sort of this overall surface, mm-hmm. or you can really drill down and go in and begin to sort of look at the minutiae and yeah. look at how he constructs these these incredible compositions. And as you point out, by traditional means, but also by digital means, he uses both to create these these incredible um compositions yeah the more you look at it things start to pop out at you global culture social media mm-hmm. um begin to take center stage in the works and you begin to see things that you recognize but at the same time you don't recognize and one of the ones that i like to point out are these funny little corporate logos that say five huh. um and what you realize is that no it's not Seven Eleven. <laughs> but it reminds you of 7-Eleven. However, he's constantly playing with that <laughs> and basically using the logo, the colorways that corporations have used to sell things and to, to make things readily legible to, to a consumer. One of the things that I think is so interesting about Japanese contemporary culture and art like this that looks like anime or manga or whatever it may be is that it it, it appears almost cartoonish and there's like bright colors, there's like emoji looking things. But right. there's there's a real melancholy to it too, and and sort of a social critique. Absolutely, absolutely. You know, a lot of the sort of environmental crises that Japan has faced is not lost on Mister, and he talks a lot about that. He talks about the earthquake that rattled Japan a few years ago. He talks about Fukushima, the nuclear disaster, even goes as far back as World War II. And that trauma that that seems to be, you know, seems to underlie, I think, his practice, but isn't readily, you know, it isn't readily apparent. Hmm. And so, yeah, there is this sort of cuteness, which is a word that is very often associated with manga and anime, this cuteness. But there is something, I think, a little dark layer there that that sort of underscores everything that he's doing. Yeah. There's also this metaphysical quality that comes out. For example, in the in the title of his largest painting, for example, it is the evening of the day. He talks a lot about time and about marking time and how that can be done. And of course, you know, this sort of a crazy obsessiveness uh, and the multi-multi layers of images upon images, worlds that, you know, are on the surface of the painting but then you look into the eyes of some of the figures and you see that there's a whole other world embedded in there. Mm-hmm. I think it's very interesting. And, it, and it's the ways 
that he uses. This is sort of the, the ways that they manifest, I think, in his work. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot going on there. I want to ask you lastly, Gilbert, um, about why you wanted to bring this show here. I mean, I know anime and manga have like a big following around the world. I know there's a convention here every year in Phoenix where, you know, crowds of people will come. There's definitely a following for this kind of art and culture here in Phoenix. But why did you want to bring it to, to Phoenix Art Museum? You know, what were you trying to do with that? You know, for me as a curator, I grew up in San Diego. Curating was was a way of me getting out and of connecting with the rest of the world. And I think for me, that's that's one of the things that brings me the most pleasure with curating. And the other part of it is counterpoint. It's a very interesting term that uh, a very smart museum director uh, once shared with me. And that is um, when you're organizing exhibitions, you don't always want to give people the same thing. Yeah. You always want to give them a counterpoint to the last show you did. And I thought, you know, I don't want I don't want to I don't want to be in a community where the only type of art that we're showing is related to a particular culture. Mm. Um, people need to also experience other parts of the world. And I thought this could be such an amazing way to engage with Phoenix audiences on that level. It would be a way of engaging with younger audiences. And it really comes down to building an audience of museum goers that feel that they're connecting with the rest of the world and that what we're offering in Phoenix is on a level that speaks globally. All right. Gilbert Vicario curated this exhibit. He's currently the chief curator at the Perez Art Museum in Miami. Joining us, Gilbert, thank you for coming on and best of luck in your future. Thank you very much. I'm so thrilled to be able to speak with you, Lauren. Hawaiian prison saw a population increase of more than 600 percent between 1978 and 2018. This explosion in incarceration numbers led the state to contract with a private prison company to house Hawaiian inmates at core civic facilities. Beginning in 2007, many of these inmates were housed in the newly built Saguaro Correctional Center in Eloy, about an hour southeast of Phoenix. Today, there are more than 1,000 Hawaiian inmates residing at Saguaro. Every year, the Hawaiian inmates observe Makahiki, the Hawaiian New Year festival. On a cold February morning, the participants leave the prison chapel in a ritual procession up a sidewalk and into a wreck yard surrounded by a chain-link fence topped with razor wire. As the sun peaks above the horizon, two inmates mark the daybreak with large conch shells. Eric Kalani Vance drew a life sentence for robbery and murder. He's now serving out his time in Arizona. Vance has been an inmate at Saguaro since the prison opened. Makaiki is a celebration lasting roughly about four months, yeah. And the opening season is in November, so we open Makaiki in November, and the closes is in, in February mid-February, and it's in honor of the god Lono, in celebration of Lono, yeah. As a senior member of Saguaro's Hawaiian community, Vance takes the lead in organizing the makahiki ceremonies. The ritual involves chanting, dancing, and games of physical and mental skill. 
games is done yearly round. When time for Kamakehiki, you know, people bring their best over here. Like um, Huki Huki, which is Tug of War. You get the spear throwing game, but we can't do it in here, but. <laughs> um, Konane, yeah. It's like almost like a chess game with the rocks and stuff like that. Yeah. You get the Uma or Hakoko wrestling and stuff like that. And people come for play music, you know, and do arts and craft and stuff like that. In the rec yard, the ceremony has begun. One by one, inmates brave the freezing morning air, clad only in kihei, the Hawaiian shawls worn by men. Many have traditional Pacific tattoos covering large swaths of their skin. They approach Vance and present offerings of palm leaves to the god Lono. As the morning progresses, the prison begins to awaken. Other inmates are pushing large tubs of laundry and squeegeeing the previous night's rain from the walkways. But their focus is on the ceremony in the fenced-in rec yard. Some stop to observe. Others go about their chores. Sean Weed is the warden of the Suaro Correctional Center. He explained how Core Civic worked with the Hawaiian community to develop the prison's makihiki celebration. We worked with the Hawaii Department of Public Safety and found out some of the practices that they were doing in the facilities in Hawaii. And then they had uh, some spiritual advisors that also contributed to helping the chaplain facilitate it. Weed is very supportive of the Makahiki celebrations. He says he's pushed for this and other cultural traditions to be practiced at Saguaro Correctional. It's such a positive thing for uh, the native group and allows them to stay connected to their family and to their identity. And so we, we think that's one of the number one keys with helping with recidivism is to keep that connection to your, your identity, to your native culture, and to the island. Back in the rec yard, about 20 inmates are standing in two lines, still dressed in traditional robes, with wreaths of tea leaves on their heads and garlands around their necks, wrists, and ankles. The rising sun is warming the morning air. The ceremony lasts about an hour, and after the traditional rituals conclude, the participants break into groups and mingle with the observers. A couple of ukuleles appear, a bass guitar is plugged in, and a party begins in the prison yard. The celebration continues into the early afternoon, and then it's back to business as usual. Van says every year a few new inmates transfer in from Hawaii, and they bring new opportunities to teach young Hawaiians the makahiki traditions. For many, Suwaro is their first exposure to makahiki, despite a lifetime spent on the islands. When guys come in here who haven't done these kind of stuff, you know, learning chants and olis and, um, you know, traditional kahiko dances and stuff like that, you know, uh, they really love it, they're enlightened when they come here. Makahiki is over for this year, but this summer, Vance and the other Hawaiian inmates will start preparing for the next celebration in late October. For now, they'll have the memories of the Makahiki to remind them of their tropical island home while they serve their time in the Arizona desert. <laughs> Oh, my God.
That'll do it for today's Wednesday edition of the show. We will, of course, be back with you again tomorrow morning at 9 with much more. And now the show is on Instagram. You can always follow us there. We are at KJZZ, the show. For Mark Brody, I'm Lauren Gilger. Thanks so much for joining us. Have a good one. That's it for this episode of The Show Podcast. To find out more about the stories from today or other episodes, visit theshow.kjzz.org. And you can subscribe to KJZZ's The Show on your favorite podcasting site. I'm Mark Brody. Thanks for listening today.